Good morning, HBC. It's another day the Lord's given us, isn't it? Amen. Yeah, we're to rejoice and be glad in it. Amen. I tell you, if you were to take a look at the uh, schedule that I've put together, I want to. I want to just tell you this right. Now. I didn't tell the eight o'clock group. I want to tell you, and, and then I'll mention to this next week and the next week after that. Uh, save this date, okay? Uh, April the 15th. It's not just tax day. <laughs> Save that date. No. April the 15th is a very, very special day. It is Good Friday. I think that we should have 300 people here in church for Good Friday service, don't you? Would you help me? And let's, let's do the best we can do. You know, that is a very special. That is the one day that, that the world will never touch. They'll go after Easter. They'll go after Christmas and everything else. But they're not going to touch Good Friday. Because they want nothing to do with it. Uh, that is a day that the Christians ought to get together. And one of the, the, the greatest things that's ever happened on earth. That Jesus Christ took away our sin, bore his father's wrath, died on a cross. And then a couple days later, we got, we got Resurrection Sunday. Amen. Folks, we don't want to miss April the 10th and April, I mean, April the 15th and April the 17th. Mark that on your calendar. Be here. Invite your friends. Uh, we'll, you'll get more information on that, but that's a distinctively Christian day, April the 15th, not just for taxes. Okay. Please take your Bibles and turn with me to the second chapter of the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah chapter 2, beginning at verse 11. And we read, So I came, that is Nehemiah said, I came to Jerusalem and was there three days. And I arose in the night, and I and a few men with me, I did not tell any, anyone what my God was putting into my mind to do for Jerusalem. And, was there, and there was no animal with me except the animal on which I was riding. So I went out at night by the valley gate in the direction of the dragon's well, and on to the refuse gate, inspecting the walls of Jerusalem, which were broken down, and its gates were consumed by fire. Then I passed to the fountain gate and the king's pool, but there was no place for my mount to pass. So I went up at night by the ravine and inspected the wall. Then I entered the valley gate again and returned the officials did not know where I had gone or what I had done, nor had I yet as told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, or the rest who did the work. Then I said to them, you see the bad situation we are in, that Jerusalem is desolate and its gates burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem so that we will no longer be a reproach. 
I told them how the hand of my God had been favorable to me, and also about the king's words which he had spoken to me. Then they said, and I love this part, when the congregation gets together, says, let us arise and build. So they put their hands to the good work. But when Sambalat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official and Geshem the Arab heard it, they mocked us and despised us and said, what is this thing you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? So I answered them and said to them, the God of heaven will give us success. Therefore, we, his servants, will arise and build. But you have no portion, right or memorial in Jerusalem. Let's pray. Father, we pray for clarity of thought and mind. May our spirit be turned toward you. May the desire that we have in our minds, Father, not be focused upon what we want, but upon what you want. Father, we want to be a church that in all things honors you. So that through us, Lord, you receive the honor and glory that's due you in Jesus' name. Amen. For the first three days after his arrival in Jerusalem, Nehemiah did nothing. So we would think, that's what the casual reader would think. You know, what kind of guy is this? A guy shows up and spends the first 72 hours taking a vacation. Can't do that anywhere else. But we would think that uh, if you just read this for what it says, so I came to Jerusalem, was there for three days. What would you do, Nehemiah? Of course, that's not true. We would be serving ourselves well, my friends, when we first engaged in any assignment to initially assess and evaluate the situation. When I was, uh, when Patty and I had moved to Bourbon several years ago, uh, we sp- we, you spent the first year or so renting a house. I'd gone there. I was passing. I'd become the director of missions. So we were living there. We spent 11 years there. Uh, it's a lot different than Pittsburgh area. <laughs> but we spent 11 years there. And uh, we, I, I had on, on the desk, I had gotten a large sheet of paper And for weeks and weeks and weeks, I mean about three months or more, I had uh, designed this house. I I drew it out. I mean, where everything would be. And it was on a large piece of paper, and I drew this thing out. And it took me such a long time. But, you know, you cannot build without a plan. You've got to have a plan. 
You cannot be the church of Jesus Christ if you do not have a plan. What is your purpose? What is your mission? What's your assignment? Are we just supposed to come together and just sit here Sunday after Sunday? Is that, is that what God has for us? Is there not a plan for our church? What are we to build? I don't mean talking about a building. I'm talking about what are we to build in and of ourselves and other people's lives? That we're to build up the body of Christ, but is there, is there not a plan for that? Jesus, when he's talking, when he's speaking to his disciples, tells those who are listening to him about the cost of being his follower. Listen to what he says from Luke chapter 14, verses 20 and 29. He says, for which one of you, listen, which one of you, when the works, when he works to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who observe it will begin to ridicule him. Whatever we go into in this church, whatever we build in this church, again, not just structurally, but I'm talking about building in, in lives, in our own lives, in discipleship, whatever we begin to build, if we do not finish, and I bet over, over the years that you've, some of you have been here, you've seen people come in and just kind of fade away, and so what happened to them? You start but you don't finish. Nehemiah did his homework. He planned his strategy as he prepared for the building of the wall. He took a look at the people around him and assessed, he assessed their ability for the work ahead in verse 17. You've got to see what you've got to work with. He calculated the materials needed to do the job. Chapter 1 and verse 8. This is king, this is what I'm going to need. He just didn't guess at it, he calculated it. He, he waited for the best time to make his plans known to the people. Verses 17 and 18. Listen, you can't run to a task with, a, with your mouth ahead of your brain and shout out to the people with Gomer Powell ver verbiage and say, surprise, surprise, surprise. It doesn't work. <laughs> there may be some people who might try that, but it's really not a good, a good plan to follow. Matthew Henry, and I love to read Matthew Henry, and I know people say, oh, that's, that's old. That is old commentary. It's old, but it's great. <laughs> Nothing done today is any better. Trust me, nothing done today is any better. I know it's, it's 300 plus years old, but it's, it's worth the read. Matthew Henry writes this concerning verses 11 through 16. He says, quote, Those that would build the church walls must first take notice of the ruins of those walls. Those that would know how to amend must inquire what is amiss, what needs reformation, and what may serve as it is. 
In essence, he says, do your homework. Do what needs to be done. If the will is not broke, don't fix it. After completing his assignment or his assessment of the situation, Nehemiah addresses the people and makes his plans known to them. Look at verse 17 where he says, you see the bad situation we are in. Notice this, that this guy's a temporary guy. He's not there for long. But he doesn't say, do you see how bad off you are? He says, do you see the situation we are in? Take note, it's not about the structure of the church. It's more about the situation of the church. And by that I mean, look at our doctrine. The church's morale. The church's practices. The church's discipline. Its willingness to follow Christ. Does the church in, it, in its disciples have more attrition than it does addition? That is... Sometimes we say, we're going to do this, and you get all kinds of people coming on board to do it. And after two, three, four weeks, it's like, did somebody open up the back door? What happened to everybody? Folks, we don't need attrition. We need addition. When the people see the good work that you are doing, when they see the good work that you are doing, They're going to want to join you. But if we say that we're going to work. And we never get to it. They're not going to join. It's kind of like the hunter. That that has his deer in his sights. And he says. Listen. He says. I'm intending to shoot. I'm aiming to shoot. I'm intending to shoot. Well folks. Sometimes you just got to pull the trigger. That deer is not going to drop unless you pull the trigger. Jesus says in Luke 9, 62, that talks about the man who puts his hand to the plow and looks back. We don't want people looking back. We don't want attrition. We want addition. We want our people. We want our church here to be such a church that when we do our work, that, that the people will see what we are doing and they will want to join us. Not that, not that we're going to have attrition. We want to have addition. Not just addition of members, but addition of workers who will put their hand to the good work. The problem with the people in Jerusalem at that time was that they had lived so long in their condition of ruin that they became oblivious to their need. Sometimes we get so used to being a failure that we feel good about that. It's kind of like the person that was a slave in Egypt for all those years. 400 plus years a slave in Egypt. And that's all they knew. They knew slavery. But when God got them out of Egypt and got them into the wilderness, they spent the next 40 years in the wilderness. And the people began to believe because they grew so accustomed being in the wilderness that God's mission for them was to be a survivor. We got a whole whole church 
All over America, the church all over America, maybe all over the world, who think that our job, that their job is to be nothing more than a survivor. In fact, we're so used to being survivors that if you have some kind of illness, then we say, I'm a survivor. Folks, I don't, listen, I went through that survivor thing too. I don't want to just be a survivor and say, well, listen, Brother Pat, he's in remission. Well, wonderful. Listen, I don't want to be a survivor. I want to be successful. God's call for Israel was not to be a slave in Egypt, nor be a survivor in the wilderness, but to be successful in the promised land. That is you. God's call for Hazelwood is not to be a survivor in the wilderness. Not to see how long we can hang on. Maybe we can hang on until Jesus comes back. But God has called you to be successful in a promised land. The promised land for you right now is right here. Serving God right here until Jesus comes back. You are the church. We're to act like it. Let's ask ourselves. What is the condition of the church today? I'm not talking about the physical structure of the church. Please understand, not the physical structure, but more so the spiritual condition of the church. I, I've heard recently, in recent times, that, uh, that in our own denomination, that we are closing the doors of our, just our churches alone. Are you ready for this? Every year, 900 churches shut their doors. Last service, I told you before that I preached at one of those churches. I didn't know that I was giving the funeral message to the church. But the, I preached the message. And they said, well, we're, this is our last service here. Breaks your heart. We're shutting the doors. You shut that door, and, and forevermore, it's closed. That church is closed. Is that our mission? We're losing nearly, in our own convention, nearly three churches every day. So let's ask why. Why is this happening? Not just our denomination, but denominations everywhere. Why are so many churches closing? Why are so many churches just like they've fallen off the radar screen? They've fallen off the map. Here's a simple answer to that question. Some 500 years ago, 500 years ago, none of you were there, but trust me. Shortly after the Reformation, the question was asked as to what are the distinguishing marks of a New Testament church? Listen, what are the marks, the characteristics of a New Testament church? Are Yun's a New Testament church? Well, let me give you the three marks that identify us as a New Testament church. Number one, this is, this was, this is what the, the Reformers said. They made three points in response to that question. Number one, a New Testament church preaches and teaches the Word of God. Now, that makes sense to me. When you were looking for a pastor, 
If that guy doesn't preach and teach the word of God, he's not going to be your pastor. I already met through a pastor search committee. I've met these seven people. Uh, I tell you what, you couldn't find meaner people. No. <laughs> they're, they're wonderful people. But they want, a, they want a guy who will preach and teach the word of God. I know that. Number two, a New Testament church administers the sacraments. Well, we don't call them sacraments, but we call them ordinances, don't we? Baptism and the Lord's Supper. But a New Testament church needs to do that. And number three, a New Testament church administers church discipline. When, when a church begins to practice, when people begin to practice something that is not biblical, the church has a responsibility of doing what? Bringing it back to where it needs to be. Getting it back into the standard that God has set. Because sometimes... We tend to drift. It's like the second law of thermodynamics is taking over the church. And we begin to go from here to down here. We just begin to slide. Well, the church has a responsibility of getting us back up where we need to be. We need to administer discipline. Say, we ain't going to do that. Now, I'm, I'm quite sure that of, of all churches that close, of all denominations, some may indeed practice these three things and praise God for them. But, you know, because of where they're at, maybe people don't live there anymore. It's pretty hard to go to church if nobody's there. However, many, many do not practice these three, these three things. So when we have a failure to follow these most basic steps, the local church begins to erode and then total collapse is inevitable. When a church begins to erode, getting it back, to, back again, it's a hard thing to do. Because erosion occurs. And you know what? The, the, the floodwaters don't cease. They keep on eroding more and more and more until total collapse happens. Just like Jerusalem's walls, the people became apathetic concerning their condition. People today become apathetic concerning their spiritual plight. Jerusalem became apathetic concerning her physical condition of her walls. The church then is no longer the church of Jesus Christ. It becomes a social gathering of people who have no real conviction with, uh, or, or connection with the God of the Bible. The church needs a Nehemiah to awaken them concerning their plight. They need a leader who will say to them, come, let us rebuild the wall. Not the wall, the physical wall, but the wall that matters to the things pertaining to God. Let us rebuild the wall so that we will no longer be a reproach. What things have we let go of that we need to re get to return to this church? Maybe nothing. I don't know that. But I know that we have the responsibility to build up the body of Jesus Christ, don't we? We're to build up the body of Jesus Christ. That's our responsibility. Are we failing in that? Are we building, are we building, up, are we building up disciples? Are we making disciples? Jesus, go and make disciples. Are we doing that? When the spiritual walls of the church have eroded and are collapsing, it then becomes easy prey for the enemy. In Exodus chapter 17 and verse 16, we read, The Lord has sworn, the Lord will have war against, and then here's an odd name, 
We're going to have war against Amalek from generation to generation. Now, what does that mean? And how does that pertain to, Jer- to Nehemiah? How does it pertain to you and I? What's that got to do with Jerusalem's walls? We must find out why there is to be war against Amalek and who Amalek is and how that, how that matters to us. In the book of Deuteronomy, before I tell you all this, in the book of Deuteronomy, let me read these passages for you. In Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 17 through 19, this is what God's Word says. Remember what Amalek did to you along the way when you came out of Egypt. Now, think of this. Israel came out of Egypt. You came out of your Egypt also. Your place of bondage. Egypt to Israel was a place of bondage. But to us, it's, we belong to the domain of darkness, didn't we? We belong to Satan. And, and here's, what he, here's what he says. Listen. Remember what Amalek did to those along the way when you came out of Egypt, when you came out of your lostness. How he met you along the way and attacked among you all the stragglers. Listen, all the stragglers at your rear when you were faint and weary. And he did not fear God. Therefore, it shall come about when the Lord your God has given you rest from all your surrounding enemies in the land which the Lord God gives you as an inheritance to possess, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. You must not, listen, you must not forget. The enemy that kept you captive wants to return to you and get you to begin to change your mind concerning who God is. The veracity of His Word. The necessity for discipleship and building up one another. The idea that we are to be his witnesses in all the world. He wants us to forget that. And then he wants to entangle us into the things of this world. That we involve ourselves with this world. Not in the things of God, but in the things of the world. God says, don't forget what he's done to you. The Amalekites, if you can picture in your mind the Dead Sea, here's Israel, and right at the bottom of Israel is the Dead Sea, and right at the top of the Dead Sea is Jerusalem. But below the Dead Sea, where the tribe of Simeon was at, there's Judah was there, and then encompassed in Judah, way to the south of Judah was this little tribe of Simeon. And it was there in that desert land these nomadic, marauding people called the Amalekites lived. And what they would do as Israel marched across and the going into the promised land, when they saw people who were stragglers, those who fainted, those who says, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm tired of keeping up. You know, we've been doing this. Lord, we've been doing this for 40 years. I'm getting tired. Oh, pastor, I've been doing this for so long. I'm tired. I'm going to. And you start walking like this. Listen, it's the straggler that Satan comes along and picks you off. One by one. Church by church. Because they're not staying up with God's people. They're just kind of moving along at a snail's pace. 
No vision, no purpose, no identity. And pretty soon they start encompassing the things of this world and those things begin to matter. You get so caught up in being a straggler that you're worried more about what God's going to feed you. Oh, Lord, we've had nothing to eat. We need quail. I want meat. I'm tired of manna. Give me something else. And Lord, I'm, I'm, tired of being, I'm tired of being thirsty. We want water. Lord, I'm tired of wearing. Lord, I've been wearing these sandals for 40 years. I want a new pair of shoes. Lord, I've been wearing, lady saying, lady saying, Lord, I've been wearing the same dress for 40 years. Could you imagine that, guys? 40 years. All of a sudden, I want, I want the things of the world I want to dress like the world. I want to look like the world. I want to relate to the world. You're going to be picked off. Paul writes to the church of Galatia. He says, in due time, we will reap if we do not grow weary. But when you grow weary and become faint, there's no reaping because there's no sowing. There's just death. God commanded Israel that when they entered into the promised land and are given rest, just as the church is a place of rest for God. You know, this is a place of rest for you. The church is a place of rest. It's, it's where your soul comes. It is, it is the bubble that we live in where there's a sense of the presence of God's Spirit because you're the church. Not the building, but the church. Within your soul, within your heart, you have the sense of God's peace is upon you. God's rest is upon you because you're part of the church. And that is in our minds and in our hearts. We are to blot out the name of Amalek. We're to blot out the name of the enemy against us because what God wants us to do is not focus on the enemy. When you focus on the enemy, then you quit focusing on God. God says, I want you to focus on me. The enemy is going to come against you. And yet, you know what? You may get physically sick, you may become spiritually tired, you may be emotionally drained. But I want to tell you something, folks. Listen, church, listen to me, please. That what God gives you is a sense of peace. Even in the midst of battle, in the midst of hurt and turmoil, in, a, in the midst of frustration, God gives you peace. That's what Israel was supposed to, was supposed to do. Blot out the name of Amalek. But let's see what they did. That was what God wanted them to do. But let's see what they did. Let's see what Israel did. I want to read something from you from, from 1 Samuel chapter 15. This tells us what Israel did. I want to read two verses for you. First of all, 1 Samuel 15, 3. It says, now go... And strike Amalek and utterly, listen, God says, and utterly destroy all that he has. Do not spare him, but put to death both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. 
Wow. That God wants to just totally annihilate Amalek and all of his forces, right? But here's verse 9. That's what God says. But here's verse 9. The, the, the king at that time in Israel was a guy by the name of Saul. King Saul. Tall man. That's a short guys that really matter. But Saul and the people spared. Saul and the people spared Agag. Now Agag is the king of the Amaleks. Uh, the Amalekites rather. Spared Agag and the best of the sheep. And the oxen, the fatlings, the lambs, and all that was good, and were not willing to destroy them utterly, but everything despised and worthless that they utterly destroyed. So here's what happens King Saul assessed the situation and decided to keep what he thought, what he thought was the was worthy of sparing. Now, let's look at the church. What is the church holding on to of this world that it has, in many cases, determined it should keep for itself? What is there in this world that you think, I got I to gotta hold on to this. I can't let go of it. God says, get rid of all that that separates me from you or you from me. Get rid of that. So here's the questions. Has some of the church embraced a worldview? Has some of the church adopted a world mentality? Adopted a worldview regarding marriage, gender, sexual deviancy, and many instances an outright rejection of the veracity of the Word of God? You see, sometimes we do. Not we, you, and not, but we, the church. Sometimes people say, well, you know what? Oh, that was 2,000 years ago, but this is the 21st century. What does that matter what century we're in? Is God's word just for a particular space and time? To which part of this world's viewpoint shall we adhere to and in so doing tear down the standards tear down those walls which God has established for his church his word says to us clearly come out from their midst and be what? be separate Nehemiah said rise up church listen rise up and build He seems to be shaming the people that they had waited so long without making any attempt to do that which was needful for their own good that he says to them in essence, take the task of doing a great task that will honor God. Church, listen. What task are we willing to take in this church that will honor God? Again, I'm not talking about building a structure. I'm talking about building lives. What task will we undertake that will really matter to God? If the best that we do is a matter of, you know, old aunt so-and-so or uncle so-and-so, boy, they can make the best casserole. 
Folks, if, if that is the mission of this church, then I would say, let's shut the doors. If, if, our, if the best we can do is cook, if that's the best, we, if that's what the church, there is no church in the world that God has commissioned says, you know what, your job is only to do this, is just feed people. Now, feeding people something spiritual is wonderful, but if our job is just simply to, to have casseroles, then I think we missed the boat. Our job is to do what? Our job is to build up the kingdom of God. Build up the kingdom of God. Verse 18 tells, tells us that after Nehemiah encourages the people to build, and he does so by setting a goal that when you, we're going to set goals here. But we need to set goals that are really attainable, don't we? I like it when churches say, we're going we're gonna, to, and, and listen, I've been there. We're, we're going to set a goal. They will set a goal that uh, there's no way. It reminds me of that Peanuts cartoon. This is how some church set goals. And, and I think it was, who's the little, not Linus, what's the other? Charlie Brown. Charlie Brown is shooting a bow and arrow. And Linus walks up to him, he says, he says, I think it was Linus, walks up to him and says, he says, what are you shooting at? He says, he says, you know, he, he says, what are you doing? He says, I'm shooting my, 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 uh, my bow and arrow. He says, and I've not missed my target yet. He says, I've hit my target every time. And, and the little boy says to Charlie Brown, he says, well, what is your target? He says, earth. <laughs> that is some of the goals that the church, <laughs> you can't miss. That's not a goal. If our goal is to maintain as to who and what we already are, we're doing the same thing that Charlie Brown was doing. In essence, what we're really saying is that we're already good enough. We're big enough, committed enough, spiritual enough, just as we are. If we say that we want If we say, on the other hand, that we want to reach thousands and thousands of people and be the biggest and most bragged about church in the state, then what we've done is we set a goal on the other extreme that is so massive that there's no possible way of ever achieving it. And let me tell you, when when churches set goals, and the poor pastor that's going to be coming here, because it ain't going to be me, when that pastor gets here and you set some goal that is absolutely out of this world, When you don't reach it, the people become frustrated, and the pastor becomes culpable. Pastor, you're not doing your job. Here's our goal. We want 50,000 members. You got to do it, pastor. Okay. (laughs) Ain't going to happen, folks. Let's be honest with ourselves. You'll set a goal for yourselves that you'll never realize. It's at this point that we lose our confidence in our pastor then, don't we? Look what Nehemiah says, because he knows he's facing this from these people. Here's what he says. He says, instead of saying, well, listen, he says, I'm going I'm I'm to take care of this for you. Boy, the guy says, I'm going to take care of this for you. Let me tell you something. 
Nehemiah doesn't do that. He doesn't go, yeah, thumbs up, I got it. He says, the hand, the hand of my God has been favorable to me. What he's doing, he says, look, folks, you want this done? It ain't me, it's God. The hand of my God has been favorable. And this is what he tells the people. He says, let me show you what God's been doing, why God is in this. When you set a goal, you better make sure that God is in. Number one, he says, God began opening doors well before I ever got to Jerusalem. Do you know that right now, God is already opening doors and windows for your past? I have no idea who this guy is. But God is opening up doors and windows that we may not know about. But already, that, the, the, the God of the Bible has already put in that man's mind and his heart that he needs to start crawling through that window or, or going through the crack in that door. He needs to get his foot out that door and begin to move slowly toward what God is calling him to. But he says, God began opening doors well before I got to Jerusalem. Number two, he says, God provided the way for me to get to Jerusalem. You see, you can, you can pay this guy to come here, but, but the path that he has to walk to get here, you, you can't provide that. That's God's business. That path for him to get here is God's business. God provided the way for me to get here. Number three, God provided the materials for us to build this wall. What material is God providing for us to build a church that he wants us to have? Let me, I'm going to tell you exactly what the material is. I'm looking at them. You are the material that God is going to use to build his church. Don't look up here. There. You, the responsibility of this pastor is to do what? To equip the saints for the work of ministry. Not him, you. He's to equip you. There's but one head pastor, but there are many hands out there. Four, God worked in the heart of the king. That's Artaxerxes. God worked in the heart of the king so that he would okay my trip. And he okayed it for 12 years. Only God could do that. Because th there is nobody going to say, you know what, take the next 12 years off. Take a sabbatical for 12 years. Come back and see me. So when he tells the people God's hand was favorable. Nehemiah led them to the mindset that God was in effect, was in effect with them. That is that, folks, this isn't Nehemiah's plan. He says, this is God's plan. What was for 90 years, for 90 years, what was the people's idea that it can't be done? Could you imagine that? 90 years can't be done, can't be done, can't be done. Now has become a picture of future reality. You know, you've you got to give the people a vision. The pastor that's going to come here is going to give you a vision. 
I don't know how old the church is. It doesn't matter. But if you keep on telling yourself, well, ain't going to happen. You got to change that. Funny thing about churches, I discovered, I'm going to close pretty soon. I I got till 3 o'clock. Actually, we have a meeting at 2.30, so I should be done. Funny thing about God's people. You know what? When, when, we, when we measure something and, you know, say, well, we're going to fill up this tube with bowling balls or whatever we're going to do, you know, or, or marbles or something like that, you know, we set goals. When you express to the people that there's a need, people, uh, that's all we have is needs. We have a needy church. People don't like, I discovered this, people don't like giving to needs. But when you tell the people, we've got a vision. There's a vision. There's something out there in the future that we can just stretch out our hands and lay hold of. All people will give to a vision. Because they see future reality. When you say a need never ends. But a future reality does. Our vision, our vision is through, Paul says, I press forward, onward to the prize, to the goal that is set before me. I'm stretching out my hand. I'm not going to take another step here. I'm stretching out my hand to lay hold of it. That's a vision. Paul says, oh, I have a need. I'm in prison. Can you send me a cupcake? Final word, because I know you want to go home. Final word. When a door of opportunity opens, you can be certain that a door of opposition opens with it. Look at verse 19. You know, we keep on coming across the Sanballat Tobiah guys. They're everywhere. Their names might change. Their faces might look different. But those guys are everywhere. It says, but when Sam Belt, the Horonite, and Tobiah, the Ammonite official, and now they pull another person alongside, Geshem the Arab, they mocked us and despised us. Nehemiah's response to his opponents in verse 20 is something that we must lay hold of also. He says, the God, the God of heaven will give us success. Don't say, we're going we're gonna to get you. This is God's plan. This is God's church. We're God's people. It's all about God. It's not about you and me. Folks, the matter of success rests in the obedience to God. Not what we want, not what we like, not what we are used to, and not as culture dictates. So ask yourself this question. Whose church is this? Who brought you here? Who will lead you to the finish line? Paul says, and I close, Paul says, forgetting, listen, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward. Folks, church, listen, reaching forward to what lies ahead. Reach forward to what lies ahead. That's Hazelwood. I pray that it'll always be Hazelwood. Let's pray. Father, we pray for insight, for truth from your word. 
Lord, we don't want to just be stragglers being picked off one by one. Father, we want to adhere to those things that matter. Lord, we want to be a New Testament church. We want to be obedient to you concerning your commands. Father, we want to be a disciplined people. Father, we want to keep the standard before us that your truth is truth. It's the Word of God, and that's where we're going to stand. That Jesus Christ is our rock. Jesus Christ, who was born of a virgin, fully God, fully man, who lived a sinless, perfect life, who died on a cross bearing the Father's wrath and, and, and our sin. Jesus, who died, was buried and rose again as he promised on the third day. Jesus, who sits in glory at the right hand of God the Father. Jesus, who is coming back. Father, that's where we stand. Lord, may we never turn from those truths. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.